Desperate to get away, he'd spent part of the previous week sailing in the Florida Keys. Sailing was one of Baxter's passions. For years, he'd decompressed floating on Galveston Bay aboard his 72-foot yacht, Tranquility Base. But he'd sold the boat several months earlier. When Baxter returned from Florida, his doctor prescribed antidepressants and sleeping pills and told him to see a psychiatrist. He'd called the shrink's office that day to make an appointment. But when the receptionist explained that the schedule was booked until February, Baxter hung up. He wasn't going to wait that long. Less than 48 hours later, at about 2.20 a.m. on January 25, 2002, Baxter stopped his Mercedes on Palm Royale Boulevard, a mile and a half from his home. It was cloudy and a bit chilly that evening by Texas standards, about 48 degrees. But the sedan was tuned to an interior temperature of precisely 79. An open package of Newport Lights sat in the center console, a bottle of Evian water in the cup holder. Baxter's black leather wallet lay on the passenger seat. Baxter parked the car in the middle of the street, with the doors locked, the engine running, and the headlights burning. Then he lifted a silver 357 Magnum revolver to his right temple and fired a bullet into his head. Seven days later, Cliff Baxter's friends from Enron gathered to mourn. The Houston energy giant's collapse into bankruptcy had already become the biggest scandal of the new century. Baxter's death had stoked the media bonfire and tossed a fresh element of tragedy into a bubbling stewpot of intrigue. Enron's influence ranged widely, from Wall Street to the White House. So feared was this company, so powerful were its connections— So much was at stake that there was open speculation Baxter had actually been murdered, the target of a carefully staged hit aimed at silencing him from spilling Enron's darkest secrets. The rumblings had forced the Sugarland Police Department to treat an open-and-shut case. Baxter had even left a suicide note in his wife's car, like a capital murder investigation, requiring DNA testing, handwriting experts, ballistic studies, and blood spatter tests. The Texas Memorial Service took place after Baxter was buried in a private ceremony in his hometown on Long Island. He was laid to rest in a plot he had secretly purchased there just a few weeks earlier, in the throes of his deepening funk. An Enron corporate jet, a remaining vestige of the company's imperial ways, flew Cliff's family and a few others east for the funeral. Now it was Houston's turn. The precise location of the service, the ballroom of the St. Regis, the city's swankiest hotel, remained a secret until noon that day, at the insistence of Carol Baxter. Cliff's widow was bent on avoiding the press. She blamed reporters' intrusions for pushing her husband over the edge. So the 100 hand-picked guests who pulled up to the valet parking station on this Friday afternoon had been summoned by furtive phone calls just two hours earlier. For ninety minutes, those who knew Baxter, family members, fellow boat people from his beloved yacht club, and Enron friends, heard warm stories about his gentler side. There were images of Cliff with his family. Cliff sailing, Cliff fronting his rock band. Baxter was a gifted musician. When police found his body, there were two guitar picks in his wallet. Everyone left the service with a compact disc of his favorite songs, prepared with the help of J.C. Baxter. Cliff's 16-year-old son. The opening track was perhaps Cliff's favorite, a bouncy pop tune called Perfect Day. On this perfect day, nothing's standing in my way. On this perfect day, nothing can go wrong. It's a perfect day. Tomorrow's gonna come too soon. I could stay forever as I am. 
on this perfect day. It was a tragedy layered on tragedy, but there wasn't much talk about the company's Icarus-like fall among the former Enron executives thrust together again that afternoon. This wasn't the time for such grim shop talk. What's more, their lawyers had pointedly instructed them to avoid such conversations. Ken Lay, Enron's founding father, was conspicuously absent. At the insistence of the company's creditors, he had finally yielded his job as CEO and chairman just two days before Baxter's death. Lay sent his wife, Linda, to attend the service instead. Enron's deposed chief financial officer, a one-time whiz kid named Andrew Fastow, was missing too. He and Baxter had fought bitterly. But former chief executive officer Jeffrey Skilling, once touted as a brilliant visionary and the man who shaped Enron in his own image, was very much in evidence. Baxter had been his closest confidant at Enron, the nearest thing Skilling.